tonight, I would like to speak to you on the subject, the man with the oily disposition. May I invite you to turn to the only unfinished book of the New Testament, the book of Acts. At the end of the book of Acts, you will find a large sign erected which says, To be continued. This is not a record of what Christ has done alone, but of what Christ is doing. And before we turn to this portion of the Word of God, shall we look to the Lord in a moment of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for the faithful teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. We thank Thee that Thy Word is forever settled in heaven. And although heaven and earth shall pass away, Thy Word shall never. We ask once more, our Father, that the Word shall settle down and find rootage in our hearts and there bring forth fruit. We pray that the Spirit who has been teaching us this week shall continue his ministry and that we shall have open and receptive hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we want to move behind the scenery of first century Christianity to discover a man little known of men, but greatly honored of the Lord. He was an ordinary man who lived an extraordinary life. I'm quite convinced he would have lived an otherwise obscure life except for one thing, his spirituality. He was no cardboard Christian, no stuffed shirt believer. In Acts chapter 11, we are given some very profound insight into the life of this man. His name is Barnabas. He is so eclipsed by his contemporaries, namely Peter and Paul, that you are liable to lose him in the shuffle. He's a behind-the-scenes man, but he sustains a determinative ministry in the church of God. In Acts chapter 11, you have a record of the church at Antioch. At Antioch, the gospel had immediate and immense success. This success raised certain doctrinal disputes. And they sent to the church at Jerusalem for some advice and adjudication. The interesting thing to note is that of all of the company of the apostles in Jerusalem, Barnabas was hand-picked to handle this delicate and difficult situation. The problem at Antioch could have split the church right in its infancy. And so they had to select a man 
who had a tremendous facility for untying knots, for handling difficult powder keg situations. And they selected Barnabas. And not without reason. For in verse 23 we read that Barnabas, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. Now I want to underscore verse 24. This is what I call a peephole text. When we were kids in Philadelphia, we used to go watch the A's and the Phillies play. And we'd walk all the way around the ballpark looking for a hole which we either discovered or made. It was the smallest hole, but through it you could see the entire game. This is one of those verses. It's a thumbnail sketch. It's a clue to the secret of this man's life. The text says, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Ghost and full of faith. Much people was added unto the Lord. A good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now I am sure at some time or other you have heard a message on the filling of the Holy Spirit. But I fear that often we overlook the marks of the filling of the Holy Spirit. What will a good man do? What will the filling of the Holy Spirit produce? How is genuine faith manifested? For a few moments tonight, I would like to direct you to two determinative areas in Barnabas' life which answered the question, what are the marks of the filling of the Holy Spirit? What will he produce in my life? I want you to turn to the first reference we have in the New Testament to this man. It's found in Acts chapter 4. In Acts 4 and verse 31, we are told that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And in verse 32, the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. But stop for a moment. To point out that Luke's method in the book of Acts is selective, not exhaustive. He is not telling you everything that happened. He is carefully selecting under the discretion of the Spirit of God 
certain specific cases to prove his point. He has just given you a general picture of the conditions that prevailed in the early church under the impact of the filling of the Holy Spirit. But a person often asks an author, give me an example. Give me a case in point. So Luke moves from the general to the specific. And he gives the case of a man by the name of Barnabas. And Joseph, who by the apostles were surnamed or really nicknamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, whence my title, the man with the oily disposition, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and bought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Here's a specific case in point. The evidence of the filling of the Spirit was extreme liberality, a God-given graciousness of giving. Barnabas was a man who apparently owned a piece of property in Cyprus. Now, Cyprus was a large, fertile island located off the coast of Syria. It was known for the production of oils, of figs, of wheats. In fact, it was proverbial. To own land on Cyprus implied that you were a wealthy individual. Now, we know something of this today. I have a friend of mine in West Texas who owns 138 sections of land. Now, this is quite a piece of real estate. And he's pretty well off, needless to say. But whenever you ask a man, what land do you own, you always have to ask, where? For conceivably, there could be an individual who owned only two acres of land, but who could be far more affluent than my friend in West Texas, because this individual happened to own two acres of land in downtown New York City. In other words, here was a man who owned apparently a choice piece of real estate on a very fertile island. He disposed of the property, and instead of placing the money at the First National in Jerusalem, he places it at the feet of the apostles for distribution to the needs of the saints. And this is cited by the Spirit of God as an evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm sure I don't need to tell a very enlightened audience such as this that the chapter divisions in the Bible are simply the product of human editors. They were added supposedly for convenience, but unfortunately at times they are more confusing than convenient. And this is a case in point. This is a very unfortunate and infelicitous chapter di division. For by putting a chapter break here, you destroy the context you destroy the contrast. 
You cannot understand what Barnabas did until you understand what Ananias and Sapphira did. If you have a revised version, you will notice that the chapter begins with a but. This is the sharp contrast. There were two individuals in the church who apparently were envious of the halo of Barnabas. And they attempted to do the same thing. But they held back part. Now let's read the account to get the story. Chapter 5 and verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession. And they kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now there's no problem in this. It wasn't the fact that they sold the property for so much and only gave a fraction of the price. Look at the next verse. Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? The implication is, of course. And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Of course. Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. What was the problem? Peter said, you sold the piece of property. You didn't have to give any of it to God. You were perfectly free to give only a portion of it to God. But Ananias and Sapphira, being filled not with the Holy Spirit, but with Satan, pretended to give it all. But they kept back part. The problem that the Spirit of God through Peter puts his finger on is the motive. I don't know what the mentality was. It's conceivable that Ananias and Sapphira sat down one night after supper and said to themselves, you know, these people are just getting reckless. This thing is going too far. These people are getting carried away under the Pentecostal enthusiasm which prevails. You know, I think what we ought to do is to put away a little nest egg. Who knows? Maybe some of these people that are so careless in their giving now will appreciate the fact that we had enough insight and practicality to keep some back to bail them out. And then, too, maybe little Simon wants to go to Wheaties College someday, and uh, we better keep something back for him. I don't know what the reason was. It's sufficient to know, my friend, that Peter said you lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, Ananias, hearing these words, fell down, gave up the ghost. Great fear came upon all them that heard these things. I think that's the understatement of the passage. Someone has said if God still followed this pattern today, we'd have to set up a morgue in the basement of the average church. 
You ever sing, My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine? And lie to the Holy Spirit? I am convinced that in the infancy of the church, the Lord made an example of this to show the gravity of the sin of pretending in one's devotion to Jesus Christ. Appearing to give all, but holding back a part. The young man arose, wound him up, and carried him out and buried him. It was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. Peter answered unto her, and notice the gracious way that he puts the question. Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. He gives her an out. And she said, sure, for so much. Peter said unto her, how is it that you have agreed together? To tempt the Spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. And she fell down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. Young men came in, found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. You know, there is a very interesting illustration you ought to keep in mind. Have you ever had someone pervert the Scripture by, say, If any of you shall agree on earth as touching anything, it shall be done. Here were two people who agreed on earth. This is an interesting word. This is the same word from which we get our English word, symphony. And in a symphony, you tune to two things. I can be in harmony with the gentleman sitting next to me playing the violin. We're agreed. But we're both out of harmony with the key pitch. What a difference. When I, under the direction of the Spirit of God, find God's will in a given case, and you, under the direction of the Spirit of God, find God's will in a given case, And you agree concerning something which God has made clear to both of you. Then you have a divine agreement which God has promised to bless. Not this kind of a contract. Will you turn with me to the book of Matthew for an illustration of this? In fact, I'd like to turn to two. Matthew chapter 6. I want you to see an illustration of giving with false and with pure motives. I must confess tonight, dear friends, that when I first entered the ministry, the most despicable part of my service was that of taking an offering. I don't know why. Perhaps it was because of background. There had been so much perverted in my presence in this area. But I developed a mindset against an offering. And finally it became so bad that I had a mind block which I had to dissolve. And I finally got out my New Testament and a concordance. And I began to chase through what the Scriptures have to say about money. You know, my friends, I made a startling revelation. I discovered the Word of God is jam-packed 
with exhortations, with admonitions, with illustrations, with examples of giving. And never, never with an apology. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You have the high and exalted doctrine of the resurrection. Chapter 16, now concerning the collection. And Paul didn't strip the gears, my friend. For there is nothing incompatible with the resurrection and the offering. In fact, I have often thought, in some cases, it really takes resurrection power to get money out of some people's pocket. Paul never apologized for taking an offering, for mentioning finances. May I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, it is my deep conviction on the basis of this portion of the Word of God and others that money cuts deep into character and is far more revelatory of your devotion to Jesus Christ than many of the things we usually put on the list. In Matthew chapter 6, the Lord gives a general statement in verse 8. Verse 1, Take heed that you do not your alms, that is your works of righteousness, before men to be seen of them. Otherwise you have no reward, that is, of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Now, we have to stop here to get a little historical backdrop. This expression, to sound the trumpet, was a common colloquial expression used to denote an individual who wanted to give in an ostentatious manner. A man would go to the temple, and the temple had located in all of its porches, strategically placed, offering, offering receptacles. These were shaped in the form of a trumpet and were constructed of metal. So if a man wanted to give in a rather flamboyant, ostentatious manner, he would take his coins, reduce them to the largest number, and he would stand back and throw it with a great deal of force and boom! All the way down the trumpet it would go. And all over the place they'd hear the sound. And you can see Schmatzkoff over on the sidelines watching Brother Ginsburg as he gives. And after he hears this sound, he says, Selah, Ginsburg gave. And he said that's precisely the reason why he gave. You know, human nature hasn't really changed a whole lot. I can remember when I was a kid, my father used to give me a dime to put in the offering plate in Sunday school, and they had metal offering plates. It used to be more fun to go to the corner store and get a chain, get ten pennies. Boy, is that offering metal offering plate, he'd come by, and I'll and you'd hear this all over the place. This is human nature back in the first century. He said, when you give, don't sound a trumpet. Don't give in order to impress men. I'm giving. Now, look at the next statement. Verily I say unto you, they 
have their reward. You know, the discovery of the papyri has thrown tremendous light on the New Testament text. And this is a case in point. A man by the name of Diceman wrote an interesting book entitled Light from the Ancient East. And in it, he informs us that the word translated have means to fully receive. For example, you go downtown, Colorado Springs, or in your community, and you buy a certain item. You pay $39.98 for it. And the sales girl writes you out a little slip, paid in full. Now, suppose after you take the article home, three days later you get an invoice. Please pay the $39.98. Please, well, there must be something wrong. So you get down to the store and you say, lady, I paid for this. She said, do you have a sales slip? Yes, I do. And you produce the sales slip. It says, paid in full. And the lady apologizes profusely. I'm awfully sorry. This has been an inadvertent mistake. This is the word that is used here. Now, notice how vivid is the teaching. Here is a man who comes and gives to be seen of men. Does he have reward? He certainly does. He has the reward of having been seen of men, and that is a fully, trans, fully receipted transaction. That ends the transaction right there. That's why he says they have a reward, but not of their Father, which is in heaven. With when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms which may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. What a searching truth, my friends, for our giving. What does the Holy Spirit produce? Gracious, liberal giving. What does Satan produce? The withholding in terms of selfish interests. Will you turn now over to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, and we have another illustration. Jesus sat over against the treasury, verse 41 of Mark 12, and he beheld how the people gave. Notice that. Not how much, but how. How the people cast money into the treasury, and many there were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. Even my friend Schofield missed the ball at this point. He has as the title, Jesus and the Widow's Might. The next time I hear somebody say this, I think I will scream. The dear lady gave two mites, and bless her heart, it only added up to a farthing, which is one of the smallest coins. But at least she gave two of them. Let's give her credit for what she gave. And he called unto him his disciples, and he said unto them, Verily I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. Now, wait a minute. He just said that this group cast in much. 
and she cast in a very little. Well, then how in the world could the Lord say she gave more in the two mites than they did in everything put together? You know what he's trying to teach you, my friend? That God's bookkeeping system is vastly different. You see, God is not primarily concerned by how much you give, as in how you give. Not the amount, but the attitude. My grandmother used to say, it's not what you would do with a million if a million were your lot, but what you're doing at present with the dollar and quarter you've got. It's an amazing phenomenon in the service of Christ that the average work of God is supported by many people who give sacrificially. That's why he said in verse 44, For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. This is the contrast between costly giving and convenient giving. Between giving in order to fulfill legal requirements and giving because... This woman was in love and gave all that she had. May I say, dear friends, that the longer I am a Christian, the more I appreciate the fact that one of the highest evidences of the filling of the Spirit is what you do with your money. In the early church, the outpouring of the Spirit of God on an individual's life led to generous giving. You know what our problem is today? It's not the high cost of living, my friend. It's the cost of high living. It's trying to keep up with the Joneses, who incidentally are killing themselves trying to keep up with the people that are trying to keep up with them. And you get on that rat race, and you're squeezed into the mold of this world. I want you to see another mark. Will you turn with me to the book of Acts again, chapter 9? Acts chapter 9. Here we have the record of the conversion of Saul. Thrilling story. Three times repeated in the book of Acts. And after he's converted, he preaches in the synagogues, and the people are amazed at what he's able to do under God's power. Now look at verse 26. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him. And they believed not that he was a disciple. This is a terrific picture of a group of Christians, isn't it? Dear brother wants to join the church. They're clubbing him. Now there's a reason for that. 
You go back to verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Here was a man who poured all of his genius, all of his passion into one object, and that's liquidating Christians. He was bound and yielded to one thing, and that's disposing of every believer. And he thought he was doing God a favor. In other words, he was public enemy number one. Now it's reported that he's a convert. And you can see the mental processes as they go about, and somebody says, you know... That's a clever one. Why, he's faking conversion in order to get on the inside. When he gets on the inside, then he'll be able to find out who are these Christians. And we'll bump them off one by one. They thought he was a fifth columnist. Now, if you want to appreciate a little bit of their mentality, look back, look down to verse 10. After Paul is converted, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I'm here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise. Yes, sir. Go into the street which is called Straight, Roger. And inquire in the house of Judas. Got it. For one saw. Yes, sir. Of Tarsus. Uh-huh. And I don't think he ever heard anything beyond that. You know that by his response. The Lord said, For behold, he prayeth, and is seen in a vision a man, man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. Now, what's Ananias do? He does the same thing you and I do. He tries to give God a little information. Do you ever do that in prayer? Lord! It's Hendricks talking. 2820 Milmar. Got the address moved since I was last there. Now look at the little prepared prayer he made up. Then it answered Ananias, Lord... I've heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints, and I'm one of them, at Jerusalem, and he just left there and is coming here. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call upon thy name. And if you want to put the correct sense, blot out the period and put a little line. He never finished his little prepared speech. And God interrupts him, but the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he's a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul. I don't know if he said that. I'm just reading in my own feeling. 
Do you get the feeling that must have obtained as this dear brother went to public enemy number one and puts his hand on him and calls him Brother Saul when, friend, he's not sure but what the boy's going to get up from his knees and put light between his head and his shoulders. This is why the church repudiated Paul. Now, look at verse 27. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way, and that he had spoken to him, and how he would preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. My friend, Saul was the most hated, friendless man in all of the world. And Barnabas alone risked all of his reputation by taking Saul in. Here's a good illustration, if you want, of a man who was willing to risk his reputation for his responsibility. You see, Barnabas was the first navigator. You thought it was Paul. No, that's the reason Paul became a navigator. You talk about a man-to-man ministry, friend, that is precisely what Barnabas sustained to this man. Did it ever occur to you the irreparable loss to the church of a saw apart from Barnabas? You see, the great apostle Paul, humanly speaking, moved as a product of this man's love and concern. That, to me, my friend, is one of the greatest marks of the filling of the Holy Spirit. A concern for others. Particularly when no one else is interested. When all of the rest of the church is interested in clubbing him, Barnabas embraces him. I have often thought if Barnabas did nothing more than salvage Saul for the church, he made a major contribution. But I want you to see another illustration over in Acts chapter 15. We looked at this briefly last night. Acts 15 and verse 36. Paul was not the only man that he took under his wing. And some days after Paul said unto Barnabas, Let's go again and visit our brethren in every city where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they do. You see, now Paul had become a navigator. Isn't that tremendous? 
He didn't say, let's go out and get some more to neglect. He said, let's go out and find out how they're doing. Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought not good to take with him who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder, one from the other. So Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren under the grace of God. So you had two missionary journeys instead of one. Someone says, but you don't have the other one recorded. No, and you don't have much that's recorded even from the Apostle Paul's journey. For Luke is not telling you everything. The interesting sidelight that we discovered last night from 2 Timothy chapter 4, my friend, is the fact that the Apostle Paul later testified, Bring John Mark, for he's profitable unto me. Ladies and gentlemen, how in the world do you think he became profitable? He became profitable as a product of the grooming and personalized ministry of Barnabas. You know, isn't it an interesting thing? Where would Saul be apart from Barnabas? But now that he's in... We can't take John Mark. Barnabas said, that's all right. I'll take him. Barnabas picks up this partial wreckage. The man who had gone back home on the first missionary journey. And he tenderly and he graciously works with him. Until finally even the great apostle Paul had to testify, bring Mark, he's profitable. And by the way, in the meantime, John Mark had written the Gospel of Mark. If you think it would have been a loss to the church not to have had Saul, my friend, it would have also been a loss not to have had John Mark. And the interesting thing is this. Here's a point for you, Navers. Both Saul and John Mark outstripped Barnabas, the man who got them started, as far as public ministry is concerned. Do you ever ask yourself, do you have someone you're working with? Are you a millstone around their neck? Or are you working with them in such a way that they could even outstrip you? They could grow to such an extent that they would be used more of the Lord than you are. You see, my friends, there's a basic principle underlying this, and I think Barnabas had caught it. Oh, I know Paul is a genius, and I am a great admirer of Paul. But I sometimes wonder which is greater, Paul's genius or Barnabas' grace. Both are needed. 
You see, the principle is this, my friend. God chooses a man not because of what he is, but because of what he is to become by the power of God in his life. My friend, that's how you got in. That's how I got in. You know, sometimes we get educated beyond our intelligence. <laughs> I've been a Christian now for 20 years. You ever look at the disciples? I love these collection of characters. This collection of characters impresses me because of what God can do. If you were going to start a business, gentlemen, and you wanted to select a board of directors, would, have, would you have picked the disciples? Honestly. I don't think any astute businessman would have. Take Peter. How would you like to have him on your part? And again, it was always stripping the gears between his mind and his tongue. Thomas, boy, wouldn't he be a terrific guy to have on your board, particularly during a building program? This old boy carries a slide rule in the back pocket. And whenever you propose something, he's got 16 reasons why it won't work. Have anybody like that in your church? You show him a donut, the only thing he sees is the hole. It's Thomas. Then there are my two dear friends, Philip and Andrew. I love these boys. They're just plain vanilla. I don't mean to be too hard on them. But I seriously question whether they had more than 85 IQ. Just vanilla. The interesting thing is when the Greeks come to see the Lord, who do they pick out? Philip and Andrew. They say, We'd like to see, you'd like to see the Lord? Wonderful. Come on. This is their mentality. Why, if they had taken them to Peter and John, they'd still be in committee session. By the way, it was Philip and Andrew, the only two men who ever brought anybody to Jesus Christ in the Gospels. It was Philip who had his nose in the kid's lunch pail. (laughs) Takes a mighty good man to be able to do that. You see Philip and John 14 are having this profound theological discussion. And finally Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. That suffices us. That's all. That's about as far as he could figure. Just plain vanilla. You go down the list. You come to the profound conclusion, my friend. The Lord chose them not because of what they were but because of what they were to become by the power of the Word of God. You know, I believe this is the reason why we pass over many an individual. We're looking for somebody sharp, whatever that means. And God's looking for somebody that He can transform. You know, I had a student a number of years ago. I never told him this, but... Before classes start, I'd look down over the desk and think, friend, what in the world are you going to do? I mean, this boy hadn't, he hadn't gone to the bottom. He'd broken clean through. He's sort of working in the algebraic minus quantity. He slept through most classes. He might as well have slept through the rest of them. Finally, he graduated. How he graduated, I'll never know. 
Some men graduate magna cum laude, other men graduate laude how come. This boy was definitely in the last classification. He graduated, went to Canada, and took a church. Good night. I started going across the country. Everywhere I went, I heard about this boy. Everywhere I went. Finally, one day, he wrote me a letter. He said, Prof, he said, I understand you're coming up in my area. wonder if you'd preach for me for a Sunday. I'm going to be away. I said, friend, I'd be delighted to. like to find out <laughs> what the secret of this boy's success was. So I got up there, and I preached in the morning service, and after I got through, some deacon walked up to me and said, Well, that's pretty fine preaching, son. <laughs> he said, By the way, have you ever heard our preacher preach? <laughs> I wouldn't dare tell him I taught him homiletics. <laughs> you know, my friend, I came back to the seminary with a new lease on life. I began to realize, my friend, if God could use a kid like this, my friend, he specializes in doing the impossible. And it's revolutionized my ministry at the seminary. I've often seen the sharp kid, you know, the top of the class, got everything in the book, but five years, where is that boy? And there's some dear little guy, you know, just scraped through. And the Spirit of God somehow gets a hold of that person's life. He revolutionizes it by His grace and He catapults the person to a place of prominence and usefulness to God's glory. Barnabas passes off the scene unnoticed. You hear no more about him. He comes on the scene, and the first scene that you have of him, he's giving. And the last portrait you have of him, he's loving. First, the great apostle Paul, whom he takes in. And secondly, John Mark, who flubbed, but who made good as a product of the grace of God through this man. You know, as we come to the end of this week, it's been wonderful that the Spirit of God has been speaking. But I am also convinced that He has yet something to say to many of us. I have often wondered why is it that it takes us so long to come to the place where we sell out lock, stock, and barrel to Jesus Christ. Say, Lord, I'm not much. I have nothing except what you have given. But all that I am and have is at your disposal. A little girl crawled up into her daddy's lap and lathered him with kisses in their Sunday afternoon tryst. Finally, her daddy said, uh, Honey, you love me? Sure do, Daddy. Mm. He said, give me your pearls. My pearls? Do you love me? 
Yep. <laughs> Tears started to roll down. She placed a little set of pearls in her father's hand and then watched him throw them into the fire. And the floods came. Finally, when she stopped crying, was just whimpering, her father said, Honey, you still love me? Yep. He said, Sweetheart, reach into my pocket. The gal went down into the side of her daddy's pocket and pulled out a set of genuine pearls that even to her childish eyes were obviously the real thing. And boy, she put them on and hugged and kissed her daddy for all she was worth. And finally she said, Gee, Daddy, it sure wouldn't have been so hard to give them up if I had known what was in your pocket. No, may I say to you, my friends, very reverently, that our problem is most of the time we're enamored of a set of five-and-dime pearls. God said, my friend, give them to me. I want to give you that genuine item. And all the time we're walking around in our life with this little trinket of junk. When the Lord wants to give us that which will bring honor and glory to Him and blessing to our life. Are you filled with the Spirit of God tonight? How about taking with me a searching test? What about in the area of my giving? What about in the area of a concern for others? Will you ask Him to be willing, to make you willing to do His will? Let's pray. Dear Father, in the quietness of this hour, we pray that the Spirit of God shall be probing, that He shall be speaking, and that Thou would give us grace to respond in faith. Our Father in heaven, we pray that Thou will make us increasingly weary of the low level of our living, and of the high and exalted plane to which we are called in Christ, and to the power that God has made available through the Spirit. We pray, our Father, that as we move out from the glen and back to the realities and the responsibilities of life, that if there is any area in which we have not committed our lives to Thee, that before we leave there shall be a wholesale dedication to Jesus Christ. For those who know Thee and love Thee and who have done this, we pray for a fresh commitment, for a realization that we're nothing, but that God wants to make us more than conquerors. We pray that thou will dismiss us with thy richest blessing. 
Wilt thou give to us journeying mercies as many of us travel hundreds of miles? Wilt thou return us to our families, to our local churches, to our communities in the blessing and the power of the Spirit of God? May people who know us take knowledge of the fact that we've been with Jesus. May there be a difference, a distinctively different attitude toward life because we have come in contact with Him. We pray our Father believingly and expectantly through Christ our Lord. Amen.